Hey, blessings on you, fellowship. Good to engage with you, and I trust that you are resting in him and trusting God to care for you and meet your every need. And uh, just delighted that you've joined us. And if you're visiting with us <laughs> via virtually here, uh, thank you for stopping at our website and checking us out. We're trusting the Lord is meeting your needs as well and, and would love for you to continue to become engaged with us here. During this time of service, uh, we normally uh, worship God in our giving, and I just want to thank you, Fellowship, for your strong support. I want to encourage you to do that, continue to do that. Uh, it encourages us, and it helps us to meet the needs of others and, and continue to leverage what God is doing in and through our church. But I also want to thank you, Fellowship. Uh, over these weeks, you have been a wonderful source of encouragement for all of us. I've interacted with our staff and the notes that you send, the encouraging texts that you send, the emails that you send, uh, just sharing your appreciation for what we're doing is a blessing and it puts, puts winds and wind in our sails. And so we're grateful to God for you and thank you. Thank you so much for who you are and for what you do. We're trusting God during this time. We've never been here before. But our great God knows the way through the wilderness, and he is our confidence, he is our certainty, he is all that we need, and so we're trusting him to lead us each step of the way. Say, would you bow your heads with me uh, there in your homes or wherever you are, and just uh, let's talk to the Lord a little bit. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and mercy. Thank you that you have been so gracious. Thank you how you continue to lead us and guide us and how you meet our needs. Thank you for your comfort and your strength. You're an unfailing God. And Lord God, today we pray in a very special way that as I begin a new series on the life of Jonah, that you will open up our hearts and that you'll fill our hearts with a sense of your love and grace and mercy and compassion. Lord, may we reflect the love of Jesus in the context of the world in which we live and the spheres of influence in which you drop us. Speak to us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in my prayer, I am starting a new series uh, today, a five-part series on the, on, the, on the book of Jonah. It's a four-chapter book. It's an easy read. You can read it in a few moments. But it is a powerful book indeed. Now, I got to tell you, about maybe 12, 13 years ago, I did a series on Jonah. I preached that book before. But as I revisited it this time, I've changed some perspectives on it. In fact, there's a great resource that I want to encourage you to pick up. It's written by Tim Keller, and the title of this book, now he wrote a book entitled The Prodigal uh, God. This book is entitled The Prodigal Prophet. It's about Jonah, and it's about Jonah's struggle. Jonah struggled with the whole idea of mercy. He struggled with mercy. He struggled with as showing grace and showing mercy. In fact, I've entitled or, 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 or taken from this book, the theme of the book of Jonah is God's severe mercy. God's severe mercy. And I use that word combination uh, intentionally because his mercy goes far beyond anything that we can ever comprehend. And you see this here in the book of Jonah. We're beginning today in chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn their Bible or device uh, to Jonah chapter 1. And we're going to look at the first six verses. And the message title today uh, is not a very flowery title. The message title today is Self-Righteous Disobedience. Self-Righteous Disobedience. 
You know, a number of years ago, I read that wonderful book entitled Unbroken. It's the story of Louis Zamperini. Uh, Zamperini, uh, as you may know, some of you read the book and even saw the movie or saw the film. Um, his plane went down during World War II over the South Pacific. And he was uh, stranded, he was afloat there uh, for something like 46, 47 days. Finally, he was captured by the Japanese and taken to Japan and put into a, a concentration camp. And he was brutally beaten and tortured, uh, roughed up. It was amazing. He didn't think he was going to live. Well, finally, the war ended and he is rescued and comes back to California. He gets married. Um, but life doesn't go well for him. He spirals down. He becomes an alcoholic. Well, his wife attends this outreach, this crusade by this young evangelist by the name of Billy Graham. She invites Louis to come and Louis goes to the services and gives his heart to Jesus Christ. He is radically changed and he begins to grow and develop in his walk and relationship with God. But one of the things that God begins to do in his heart and life is to convince him that he needs to show the grace and mercy that he's received from Jesus. No, not just to his friends, but to those guards back in Japan, those very ones who tortured him. And so you know what he does? He goes back to Japan, runs down these very guards, and expresses his love and forgiveness. <laughs> Amazing. To the men who almost took his life. And it was all because of what God did in his own heart and mind. Keep that story in the back of your mind. Put a pin in that as you read through the book of Jonah. Because this is the message that God is drilling into the heart and mind of this prophet. Paradoxically, a prophet. Jonah's biggest struggle was a struggle with self-righteousness. His biggest struggle was a struggle with self-righteousness. He felt that he belonged to the right group of people. He was a, a, a Jew and he was a prophet and he understood the voice of God and he understood how God worked and doggone it, this is the way he works and this is the way he's always going to work. Keller gives us a little bit of an insight and I want to quote from him uh, from his book, The Prodigal Prophet. He says that Jonah wanted a God of his own making, a God who simply smites bad people for instance, the wicked Ninevites, and blesses good people, for instance, Jonah and his countrymen. Jonah wanted God to be like him. Jonah wanted God to deal with people the way he preferred to deal with people. And this indeed is self-righteousness. Uh, we're going to get into text here in a second, but I, I thought it was important to give a couple of characteristics of self-righteousness. And I've outlined three of them. Self-righteous people are characterized by uh, uh, having a hard time, number one, extending grace and mercy to others, although they demand it for themselves. I've seen this in folks. I've seen it in my own life, in my own journey through self-righteousness. We, 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 we have a hard time extending grace and extending mercy. But paradoxically, we, we, we demand it for ourselves. Secondly, self-righteous people, they present themselves as the standard. I'm the standard. I don't struggle with these things. I don't struggle with these problems. I don't struggle with these issues. And in a hypocritical way, they project on others 
not so much God's standard, but they feel like they are the standard. And you see this and smell this all the way through the book of Jonah. And then thirdly, self-righteous people judge others and assume that even God will measure up to their expectations. That's a strong statement. They won't articulate it that way, but they assume that they have mastered the biblical content and they know so much about God and they pour it through their own carnal posturing and they think that even God has to measure up to their expectations. Now, before you say that's crazy, read the book of Jonah because that's exactly where he is. And I'll tip my hand, you get to chapter four, that's why he's so ticked off at God. He's mad at God because God did not meet his expectation in terms of how he should have dealt with the Ninevites. So Jonah's struggle was a struggle with self-righteousness. Jonah's struggle was a struggle with pride. And the way we kick this thing off in these first six verses is here you have Jonah, God teaching Jonah two important lessons. And these two lessons are the primary pillars of the entire book of Jonah. And I just want to say it applicationally. The first lesson is this. God sometimes will tell us what we don't want to hear. Lesson number one. And lesson number two, God will not be ignored. Those are foundational lessons. God often will tell us what we don't want to hear. And then secondly, God will not be ignored. I want to say that second one again. God will not be ignored. Well, the first lesson is this. Okay, we pick it up here in chapter, chapter one, beginning at verse one. Number one is that uh, God will sometimes tell us stuff that we don't want to hear. And so in verse one, there's this clear call from God. Verses one and two, very clear. Uh, God does not mince word. He is not indirect. It's not a dream that needs to be interpreted. It's not some little riddle that you need to go and figure out. Uh, God doesn't stutter. He doesn't have a speech impediment here. He is very clear about what he wants Jonah to do. It's a clear call. He says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Ah, That's the assignment. Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, In order to understand Jonah's pushback, you got to understand a little bit about Nineveh. (laughs) You got to understand a little bit about Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was not a neutral place. Uh, um, Nineveh Nineveh was uh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And here you have something else that you need to understand that, that, that the text doesn't come right out and say this. But if my if my research is correct. Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that is sent to a Gentile nation. The prophets of God were normally sent to his own people. Now, they they prophesied against other nations, that's that's for sure. But they were sent, they were sent to their own people. Here, Jonah is sent to a Gentile nation. Now, it's not just any Gentile nation. It's not just any Gentile nation. It's not just any Gentile city. It's Nineveh the capital of the Assyrian Empire. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, it's huge. The Assyrians were the oppressors of the Jews. 
So here you have this Hebrew, this Jew, being sent by God to not just any Gentile city, but the capital city of a notorious Assyrian empire. Now, the Assyrians today would be known as a terrorist state. Uh, if you just study the history, and I don't want to ambush our time here, but if you would just study the history of the Assyrians, they were not just bad people. They were of the most violent and cruel people in ancient times. Let me just give you a little, a little illustration. Do you know what they used to do when they captured people, when they captured their enemies? This was a, fav a favorite thing that they would do. They, they were just brutal. They would cut off their legs, and then they would cut off one arm and leave the other arm attached to the torso. And the reason why they did that is what they wanted to do, what they did was to shake, they shook the hand of the person while he was dying, mocking them. So Jonah said, you, you, you want me to go where? But it was a clear call. No, you, you go, you go to Nineveh. Yeah, that great city. Yeah, you know about them. The capital of the Assyrians. Yeah, they're brutal people. Yeah, they're, they're the enemies. They're the enemies of my people. But I want you to go there, Jonah. I want you to go there. And yet it was this very nation that God wanted to show his compassion. Do you see why I entitled the series God's Severe Mercy? Now, you know, I've heard sermons before where they just get all over Jonah for wanting to disobey God. They get all over him because he didn't want to do this. Now, I got I to tell you, as I was studying this text again, I'm thinking to myself... If I knew what Jonah knew, I would have some pushback. I don't know that I would have done what he did, but I'd have some pushback. As God, are you serious? I mean, maybe I misheard you. No, but God wanted him to go there. Now, this begs two questions. Number one is this. How could a good God give a nation like that even a slight chance to experience his mercy? How could that be? And the second question is, how could God ask Jonah to betray his country's interests? How could that be? That's, that's, that's kind of like right after 9-11. God sending some of us to be missionaries, not, not only to these terrorist states, but to the leaders of these states and the people who organized the bombing. How could God do that? And yet this is precisely what he does. And so there is this clear call, but then secondly, there is equally a clear refusal. John in verse three says, I'm not doing it. Flat out, no, I'm not going there. It says in verse three, but Jonah rose to flee. God says, arise and go. Jonah arose to flee. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, that was stupid. Jonah was a prophet. He knew he couldn't get away, away from God. He understood his theology. But he, he, he got up and ran. He said, I am not going to do this. He, he went to Tarshish to get away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. 
away from the presence of the Lord. Redundancy here. Got to get away from God. Got to get away from God. Got to get away from God. I don't like this. I don't want to do this. I, I can't stand this. This is not what I signed up for. Those are some wicked, evil people. And I'd rather die than do what you tell me to do. Now, you got to understand some ge- geography. I, uh, I've been to Joppa there, it, 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 where Jonah went. Nineveh, Nineveh was there in the Mediterranean, there in Joppa, was approximately 500 miles northeast of Joppa. Tarsus, check this out, was approximately 2,000 miles west of Joppa. God said, no, I want you here. Jonah said, no, I'm going as far away from you as I possibly can can go. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Now, before we get too hard on him, what about you? At this stage in my life, I I know one thing for sure. There's a lot of things that I'm not sure about, but I know this for sure. God will often tell you to do stuff that you just cannot stand to do. What are you going to do? Could it be that some of you listening to me right now, you have been, quote, running from the Lord. You've been running from his call on your life. You've been running and going in the opposite direction, frankly, because what he's assigned you to do and told you to do is not what you're willing to do. It doesn't fit with where you're going or what you like. But as we'll see a little bit later here, you can't, um, you can't outrun God. You see, Jonah had a problem with the job he was given, but he had a bigger problem with the one who gave him the job. Jonah's anger was extended toward God. And so the redundancy there, when, when, when the writer says that he ran away from the presence of the Lord, and he says, yeah, he ran away from the presence of the Lord, I don't think that Jonah really thought that he could get away from God's presence, literally, but I think what he thought was that I, I, don't, I, I don't like him now. I don't like God now. I don't like him showing mercy to people who are our oppressors. So I got to get away. I got to get away. What was his problem? Here's the essence of Jonah's problem, and we're going to see this time and time again. The essence of his problem was this. Unless Jonah can see his own sin and see himself living under the mercy of God, he will never understand how God can be merciful to evil people and still be just. And that's our problem today, too. That's the problem of all self-righteous people. The problem of all self-righteous people is that they have forgotten the severe mercy of God in their own lives. Self-righteous people compare themselves horizontally rather than vertically. Self-righteous people have an inadequate theology and view of sin. Self-righteous people, somehow they behave as if their pride and their arrogance and all of that did not send Jesus to the cross. 
Oh, I tell you, I tell you, the greatest way of, 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 of releasing grace and mercy in and through our lives is to catch a glimpse of the damnable devastation of our own sin, our own culpability. We have all hurt the heart of God. It doesn't make us any better than anyone else. And that was the message that God was giving to Jonah and the reason why he sent him there. So what's happening with my man here? Well, it's, 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 not, really, it's not really cool. So the first lesson is this. God will tell you to do things that you don't want to do. And the second lesson is pretty obvious. We come to, we come to verses four through six. Lesson number two is that God will not be ignored. I, I just need to say that to all of us here. I just need to say that. God will not be ignored. You can't do this to him and think that there are no consequences. You can't do this to him and think that he will not respond. What happens here? Well, Jonah runs, but God won't let him go. Wait, 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 you think you're going to get away from me? You think you're going to get away from me? There are two things in verse, verse 4 and then verses 5 and 6. Um, God won't be ignored, and what will he do? Well, number one, he will send a storm, and then number two, he will put a spotlight on our sin. First of all, he will send a storm. Okay, so he runs, and he gets in this ship, and they're going, and verse 4 says, but the Lord hurled, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. God hurled. That word hurl, that Hebrew word translated hurl there, is is often used for uh, throwing a weapon or a spear. It's the same word that's used over in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 11, when Saul threw the spear at David. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a shot over the bow. God says, You gonna run from me? You think I won't come after you? So what does he do? God hurls a storm right at the ship, right at the ship. God threw a mighty storm onto the sea around Jonah's ship. I like to believe that that storm did not affect the whole area. I can't prove it from the text, but I believe, I believe that that storm was localized. You got somebody on board that refuses to listen to me, that won't do what I'm telling them to do. Listen to me, listen to me. Again, I, <laughs> there's a lot that I don't know, but this stage in my life, I have, I have seen this in life. I've seen it in my own life. Every act of disobedience invites a storm. Every act 
Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows or woman sows, that shall he also reap. There's no such thing as crop failure with God. You don't disobey God without consequences. Every act of disobedience brings a storm. Now, let me parenthetically say this. No, there's suffering in life. There's pain that we're going through. Some of us right now with this COVID-19 and this pandemic, we're experiencing suffering. And God meets us in that suffering. And the suffering is not, is not God's, uh, uh, God's discipline of us. Uh, I'm not talking about that. But where there's flat out disobedience, there's consequences. And some of the storms, some of us are going through storms right now and it's un- unnecessary. And the reason why we're going through those storms is because we told God no. We told him no. And if we sat down and begin to pray and ask God to show us why are we going through this right now? He will point us back to area or er- an area or areas of disobedience in our lives. And I want you to understand something. Jonah's mess and Jonah's disobedience and the storm that he went through did not just affect him. It affected those around him. The sailors on that ship simply because he would not do what God called him to do. Some of us have relationships that are all jacked up. We got got mess going on. We can't can't find peace with other people. and, And when you sit down and think about it, it's not that they're the problem. We're the problem. The guilt is, is, is cascading down around us. Things are not working out. Why? Because we've chosen to disobey God. And God said, okay, I'm hurling a storm. You think you can run from me? Seriously? Storms. And I know, I know, fellowship, this is hard stuff to take. But I think we, we have embraced an entitlement Christianity. We think we can edit what God tells us to do and there be no consequences. That somehow we're the center of everything and somehow God has to reduce his standards to make me feel good about my choices in life and endorse what I want to do. No, God says, no, buddy, you exist for my glory. I want you to be the expression of my biography through your life during your moment in history. And you don't ignore me and you don't tell me no. So there was a storm. There was a storm. And secondly, underneath this banner of, 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 of God will not be ignored, he will, use, he will send a storm. But number two, he will put a spotlight on our sin. Verses five and six. <laughs> then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Uh, listen to what's going on here. The results of Jonah's disobedience are dramatic. And even the sailors recognized that was hap- what was happening was not normal. This was not some normal storm. This was supernatural. I don't know if they looked off in the, to the dis, in the distance and could see through the rain blowing sideways that it was calm over here. I don't know. But this, this violent storm was not ordinary. 
There's no warning. Even these, even these <laughs> Gentile sailors recognized that this thing was supernatural. Storms are meant to wake us up to the realities that we have not, we've ignored. We've ignored. And Jonah could not see that in the terror of the storm, hear me on this. Jonah could not see that even in the terror of this storm, that God's severe mercy was at work, calling him to change his heart. In a very real sense, the storm was an act of God's mercy. Jonah, Jonah, you don't have to be in this situation. You don't have to be in this mess. Why are you ignoring me? Why are you choosing to run away from me? This is amazing. Now notice it says that he had laid down and was fast asleep. I used to, um, this is one of the significant things that uh, Tim Keller has influenced me on this and I went back to the text. I used to think that Jonah was fast asleep because, hey, he was at peace with his disobedience. I think not now. I've changed my view on that. I, I don't think this was the sleep of peace that he was experiencing. I, I, I think that this was, believe it or not, the sleep of guilt. I think it was the sleep of guilt. I think Jonah was sleeping because he didn't want to face reality. If I just fall asleep, maybe, maybe I'll stop hearing these voices. Maybe I won't feel as guilty. I'll just sleep. I don't like what I hear in my head. I don't like what God wants. I'll just sleep. And by the way, he isolated himself because he didn't want to have anything to do with even these Gentile sailors. And that's the reason why he was so far away from them, down in the inner resources of the boat. He didn't like the Ninevites and he didn't like these Gentile sailors. So he was sleeping. Now, while Jonah is self-absorbed, these sailors are seeking common the common good for everyone. You know, one of the tragedies of this little section, this little narrative here, is that these sailors, these sailors, they, they outshine Jonah. They were more compassionate than Jonah was. And by the way, this is the theme of the book. This, God sends them to show mercy. The sailors show him mercy. Later on, we're going to see he gets thrown into the sea and this great fish swallows him. God shows him mercy by sending this fish. So God is showing Jonah mercy, but he can't get it. He can't get the message. In fact, in fact, these, every, even these sailors are praying to their God, but Jonah doesn't pray to his God. Again, he's mad at God. These sailors are praying to their God. They said, call on your God. Jonah is not praying. They show his God high respect. And it's as if God is saying to Jonah, you're going to devalue these people? At least they're acknowledging and respecting me. They're inviting you to pray to me, but you won't pray to them? You see, Jonah's private faith is of no public good. That's his problem. You know... Um, These sailors are sending a message to Jonah. 
And the message is this. Okay, you don't care about Nineveh, but these Gentile sailors care about you. You don't care about Nineveh, but these Gentile sailors are caring, they care about you. You see, uh, there are unbelievers who are more merciful and compassionate than Christians. I hate to say that. I hate to say that. I hate to say that. But it's true. It's true. I have met unbelievers, unbelievers who don't have a relationship with Christ, who who in some instances are far more kind, far more compassionate, far more merciful, far more understanding than even some of our self-righteous Christians. Less judgmental, more embracing. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? And yet, that's, that's what this narrative says. That's what it says. This is Gentiles. They didn't want to deep six Jonah. They end up doing because he asked them to. They didn't want to deep six him. They're trying to save everybody. They're trying to save everybody. Look, I want to book in this. This series is one long message, so uh, this may sound a bit abrupt. But at the end of this right now, I want to ask or raise four critical questions that we need to think about. You might want to jot these down. You might want to interact with your children about these questions, because this is fundamental to their lasting joy, a respect for the voice of God, and a passionate desire to obey what God tells them to do no matter what. That's foundational. That's foundational to the Christian life. And the ability to be vehicles of love and grace and mercy to others, and to receive and express that mercy in the same way that God, God himself has received us. So here are these four questions. Number one is this. Are you assuming that God will meet your expectations? Now think about that. Don't, don't, don't be so quick to answer that question. I know at first glance, well, of course not. No, well, look at, you. Look at how you behave. Look at how you think. Look at how you respond. Are you assuming that God will meet your expectations? Secondly, are you refusing to be used by God to extend his mercy? God might be nudging you to forgive someone that has hurt you deeply, like Louis Zamperini. God might be nudging you to express kindness and love and mercy to someone that has offended you deeply. Again, the question is, are you refusing to be used by God to extend his mercy? The third question is this. Have you lost sight of how merciful God has been to you? Have you lost sight of that? Have you lost sight of how merciful God has been to you? And the fourth and the final question is this. Are you telling God what you will not do? Now, now, I, now, I know we know how to PR the thing, okay? I know we know how to, you know, you, you use euphemisms and, and kind of soften it, put cotton around the statements. But when you peel the layers back and you fillet this thing and you do the autopsy on it, are you telling God what to do with you? Are you dictating to him 
We belong to him. We are his vessels. You see, Christ died on the cross in our place and for our sins. And when we came to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that was not just an intellectual transference, but that was an eternal transformation. It was a transformation and a transaction that took place. We, 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 we came out of the domain of darkness into the domain of light. We gave up ownership of our lives, and we belong to him. We exist for his pleasure. And great joy is found even in tough, hard obedience. Will you let God use you to be the expression of his love and mercy? Say, if you've never come to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, right now would be a great time. Because all of those sins that you and I have ever committed instantly will be taken away. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. If we turn from our sin and trust him, he will be our savior. Father, thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for how good you've been to us. Oh God, oh God, I search my own heart. Help me, Lord God, to not superimpose my expectations on the way you deal with me. But may all of us fall to our knees with open hearts open ears in our response to God, no matter how severe it is that you ask us to do, is always yes. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen.